Welcome to the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Podcast. My name is Natalie Nidham. I'm a nutritionist, a human potential, and epigenetic coach, and I created this podcast to bring you the latest ways to take control of your health and longevity. We cover it all, from new technology to ancestral health practices, personalized interventions, and a very special interest of mine, peptides. Enjoy the show. Welcome back, guys. Today's episode is, well, it's pretty special. It's special in a couple of ways. Number one, if you're listening to this on iTunes or Spotify, know that I've also released the video version of this podcast on YouTube. And the reason for that is because my guest today brought incredible slides to share with people. And I thought it would be more interesting for you to be able to see the slides while he's speaking to them rather than me putting up the slides in the show notes somehow, or and then you trying to go back and listen to it and put the slides together with the show notes. So um, number one, it's on video and it's on YouTube. So I invite you to check out the YouTube version if you haven't done so. And it's just on my channel, which is Natalie Nidham. Um, all of my audio, all my other podcasts are there too. And in addition, I've got a lot of older podcasts that I used to only do video for there as well. So you know, might be a new world for you guys to discover. Number two, this is a long episode. It's an hour and a half. So pace yourself, give yourself some time, maybe split it up. I don't know. I don't usually do podcasts this long, but in this case, I think it was warranted. Also, even with an hour and a half podcast, we didn't actually get through everything. So there will be a part two to this podcast coming down the pipes in the next two to three weeks or so. We've already got it scheduled. Hopefully um, it, it, it holds. Anyway. You should probably, you're probably wondering who the heck is she talking about and why am I listening to this? My guest today is Dr. Bill Laurence. Dr. Bill Laurence is a researcher. He's got a PhD in nutrition. He is very, very interested in longevity, in extending lifespan. And I'm not going to tell you why, but he has a very personal reason for this. Um, and this is what ultimately pushed him after a career in law, followed by a career as an entrepreneur. He then decided that he was going to study and get into the science of longevity and for very personal reasons. And what this has led him to is a place where he is now working in collaboration with Dr. Vladimir Kavinson from the St. Petersburg Institute of Gerontology. If you haven't heard this name yet, Dr. Kavinson is the guy who has brought us peptides as we know them today, particularly the bioregulators. Um, and his story is fascinating. We talk about it a little bit in this episode. And then, um, and so anyway, so he's working with Dr. Kavinson. He is now a member, Dr. Bill Laurence is now a member of the St. Petersburg Institute. And he has been running a clinical trial with a group of people in the US for the last three years to establish whether or not using bioregulators in a personalized way can actually help to reverse or slow down the rate of aging. So you can't really reverse your age. I mean, you are, you've been around the sun as many times as you've been around the sun, but from a cellular level, at a cellular level, can we slow down and maybe reverse aging? And we talk about some of the results in this podcast, and I think you will find them fascinating. How are they measuring this? So they're measuring this through telomere length, 
And they're also measuring it through DNA methylation patterns using the Horvat clock. Now, in terms of the DNA methylation results, we couldn't get to them today because we were already at an hour and a half. So that's what part two is going to be about, which I'll release in, in maybe three weeks or so. The telomere results uh, that he's able to share so far, we do talk about today. And we talk about the tests that he uses and the whole nine yards. So um, without further ado, I'm going to let you guys dive into the episode. But first, of course, I have to say that all of the information in this podcast is for information purposes only. Please don't run out and decide you're just going to do this on your own, which is an interesting statement because the bioregulators are quite different than the peptides we're used to talking about. The bioregulators that he's using, the Cavinson bioregulators, are actually qualified as food supplements. So you'll learn more. Um, if you guys are interested in, even though I'm, I'm going to repeat that this is for information purposes only, before you run out and decide to do any of this stuff, you've got to check with your health professional, your medical professional, you've got to check in with people because, you know, like you just never know how your body's going to respond to these therapies. Some of them are not approved. So please, please, please take this as in the spirit it's intended as sharing information and educating yourself in your own personal journey. Um, but if you decide that you want to um, give some of these peptides a try, then you can go, I, I will put in the show notes, the link to a website where you can order these bioregulator peptides along with a discount code. Um, and finally, my last little spiel is, of course, if you get value from this episode and for, from this podcast in general, please leave us a review. Please share it with your friends and your networks, because the bigger we get, the more of these amazing guests I can get on the show for you. And um, it is my joy doing this podcast. I got to tell you, I feel so grateful that I get to do this and talk to these people. It really is you know, of all the things I've done the last 10 years, aside from coaching people and watching them um, achieve amazing things in their results, uh, doing this podcast is just amazing. So let me mention again how grateful I am for you guys. And if you would be willing to leave us a review and even to send me your comments, I would be so grateful again. Um, if you're looking to connect with me, you can find me at natnidham.com. That's my website. And also you can connect with me through my Facebook group, which is the Optimizing Superhuman Performance Group on Facebook on MeWe, where we can speak more freely about more topics because Facebook, as many of you probably know, has become a bit prickly on the alternative health spectrum. So you can go to MeWe to the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Group. And there, there's nothing we can't talk about. It's a smaller group. I'm not there as much, but it's definitely there. And then finally on Instagram, it's just at Natalie Nidham. Natalie's got an H in it. Remember, N-A-T-H-A-L-I-E. And last name is Nidham. And I can also be found on Clubhouse every once in a while. I'll participate in rooms there. So thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you guys. I think there's a little mention of our episode sponsor before we get into the episode, but the sponsor is quite relevant to this discussion. Although it's not bioregulators, it's one of those nutrients that our body needs to renew itself at a cellular level. So without further ado, here we go to our sponsor and next we get into the episode. Enjoy. One last thing before we get into the episodes, folks, is our sponsor. Our sponsor this week is Primadine. Primadine is spermidine. 
It is a food-based supplement with an extremely high safety profile that holds six of the nine hallmarks of aging. It is the purest on the market with zero fillers and a formulation that also supports the endogenous production of spermidine, our active ingredient, through a prebiotic. So the only ingredients you will find in this beautiful capsule are defatted concentrated wheat germ extract. They've removed the fat so to avoid any chance of oxidation of that fat because these are very delicate omega-6s. So in this case, it's better just not to have them all together because they get damaged so quickly. Um, and a fructooligosaccharide to selectively feed specific bacteria in the gut biome. For those of you who are into this kind of thing, these would be the fuso and bacteriides bacteria in the gut biome. And that's it. That's all you get. No excipients, no fillers, none of that, none of that stuff. Um, and what's also incredible about primidine or spermidine in general is that not only do you get all the amazing under the hood benefits of DNA protection, folding of proteins, autophagy, and, and more, you also get the visible results. And people will find after a couple of months, usually, I mean, almost always, I'm actually amazed at the number of people, men and women who report this, that their nails are stronger, their hair is thicker and fuller, and their skin looks amazing. So if you decide that you would like to try this for yourself, you will want to go to primadine.com, use promo code BIONAT15. So that's B like Bob, I-O-N-A-T-1-5-15. That'll give you 15% off your entire purchase. And that promo code can be used over and over again. Thanks for listening. And if you decide to give it a try, don't forget to let me know. Let me know what you think. All right, guys, enjoy the episode. Welcome to the show, Dr. Bill Lawrence. It is such a pleasure to meet you. Now, do I say your name Lawrence or Lawrence? Either way is fine. <laughs> you can even say, hey, guy. <laughs> Perfect. I'll remember that. Um, so, Dr. Lawrence, um, you are involved in probably, in my mind anyway, just in terms of my fascination with things and the fact that I've been kind of buried in the world of peptides over the last couple of years in probably one of the most fascinating um, clinical trials that has taken place um, in the area of, I, you know, we can call it anti-aging, regenerative medicine, whatever the case may be. Um, in this use in the space of the Dr. Cavinson bioregulator peptides. And so I, first of all, want to welcome you to the show and thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me today. You're welcome. Um, and now I'll just keep going. <laughs> I was ready to launch into the podcast all by myself. Okay. So having said all that, and we are going to get to all of that fascinating stuff shortly, but I really I really love to start the show knowing, helping people to understand a little bit about our, my guest. And you do not have, by any stretch of the imagination, you have not followed a conventional road to where you are today. So would you be willing to share with us a little bit of how, how are you here today doing this and as much of your backstory as you're willing and comfortable sharing? Yes, um, I, I am. Um... 
I'm pleased to be here. I'm actually, I'm just pleased to be anywhere. <laughs> uh, and I say that uh, based on the following. In, in, the, in the religion uh, that I was raised in, they do a lot of genealogy work. In fact, they're famous for the genealogy work. And a, a lot of these databases, uh, Ancestry.com and so forth, actually um, use the data that this church has accumulated. Well, I, I can say it, it's the Mormon church. Okay. Um, and so they have vast data banks in terms of genealogy work. And uh, growing up, I, I knew what somewhat what the family genealogy was. And what I realized later when I was an adult was that in the prior 200 years where we had both birth and death data, uh, no male had uh, lived longer than 70 years and only one male made it to 70. Uh, wow. I'll mention him in a few moments. All the males died in their 50s and 60s. Almost everybody that we had information on, certainly for the last three or four generations, from heart disease. And my uncles, my grandfathers all died in their 50s. Um, my father had his first heart attack at 57, fatal heart attack at 65. And knowing that, of course, you know, I was aware that I better do what I can. And, and part of that was at this point in my life, I was sort of an entrepreneur building medical buildings and shopping centers and all that kind of stuff. And I, I realized uh, with my father's death, I realized that what's important to me to earn another million or two or $5 million, or is it to have a, a longer life and a healthier life than my ancestors, including my father? So with his death, I sold off everything. It took me five years to sort of dismantle my little enterprise and went back to school and got a master's first and then got a PhD in uh, nutritional science, actually, and started doing research. And this would be 30 years ago now. Um, the one male that made it to 70, this is sort of a sidebar story. The one male that made it to 70 was this wonderful uncle of mine. He was a non-denominational preacher and just the, the most humble, honest, ethical man I've ever run across. And he would preach all the time. There's a section in Psalms that basically says that uh, human life should be three score and 10 years. Well, that's 70 years. Right. He turned 70. Th three months later, he came, he came down with a diagnosis of cancer and about four months later died. <laughs> so the lesson there, there's actually two lessons, I think. One is be careful what we put into our brains. Absolutely. Yeah. He had spent his whole adult lifetime talk, talking, preaching, and basically saying, you know, that kind of thing, the, the palms. The second lesson is you should always consult your attorney on serious <laughs> questions, because if he had asked his nephew, I'd have said, yeah, but there's this other section, I can't remember where it is now, that says, that basically kind of says, you know, it's the opposite of, of, of prisons where you get time off for, for good behavior. Uh -huh. Well, there's a section, I, I wish I could remember where it was, uh, that says, if you have good behavior, you can get another 10 years. Oh, my God. And he yeah. missed that part. So we Well, if, if he had consulted me, I'd have done the research. <laughs> I mean, I'm laughing, but it was kind of sad that, you know, anyway. So yeah. 
my father's death was a, a pivotal uh, moment because of the family history. And, and so that's what brought me into the field of health. And, and because I had the, the uh, law degree and as a sort of a tax attorney, I was used to doing a lot of research. Uh, it was just a natural to dig in and become sort of a research uh, expert, you might say. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, when I got my PhD, I spent the first five years doing research mostly for alternative medical clinics and alternative doctors to be able to um, decipher for them the uh, real results from pharmaceutical clinical studies nice. rather, rather than the published results. And you probably know the difference between relative and absolute. Yeah. All that. So I spent the first years doing that, uh, basically explaining to the doctors what the reality of various drugs were uh, talking about and, and providing research with regard to the cholesterol myths and the statins and all that kind of stuff. And then my focus became longevity at that point. Nice. Okay. And so longevity makes total sense with where you are today, but how did you get to exactly where you are today? So you got interested in longevity. At what point did you discover or uncover or, you know, kind of part the curtains, if you will, on this whole area of study, which is the bio bioregulators, which is really like this is full on out of Russia. This is Dr. Vladimir Kavinson's life's work, really. Yes, yes, um, yes. And it's not, you know, the Russians have not gone out of their way to make this information available outside of Russia, certainly not to North Americans for any number of reasons. Um, and so how did you get there? How did, how, did you, how did you find Dr. Kavinson's work? Because, I mean, I stumbled upon it quite by accident. I would imagine in your world, being in the longevity space, there was a bit more intention behind it. Yes, there was. Um, I became aware that there was a difference between telomeres and telephone poles. <laughs> okay, well, that's a good, that's a good distinction to make. <laughs> yes, I, and I narrowed it down a little after that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that actually was the start. I... I, I came to understand, of course, that um, that telomeres have something to do with longevity and and also health span and so forth. Um, and there's, you know, there's still a lot of un, unanswered questions with regard to telomeres. And there's some scientists that will argue that that it's it's not necessarily causative, it's association, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. But my research indicated that that was a, probably an appropriate intervention area was telomeres. So I did a lot of research and what was really helpful was Google Translator. Yeah. You got to love it, that thing. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Next to Google Scholar, it's magic. Yeah, truly, <laughs> truly. And so I could now read studies, you know, that were in Mandarin. I could read you know, Russian studies, et cetera, et cetera. And I ran across a study by Professor Kavinson, um, where the pineal gland peptide that they had developed um, under the auspices of the Soviet Union military, actually, um, they had data showing that it uh, activated the telomerous enzyme and could lengthen telomeres. And when I realized that and did, you know, a couple of years of more study and more research and so forth, Um, I decided to go knock on their door. Um, It helped that my family is from Russia. 
Uh, I am uh, uh, an American with an American passport, but I have a father named Ivan. I have two brothers named Ivan. Um, that's almost as good as a as a, a Russian passport for the Russians. Um, anyway, so what happened? I literally went knocking on their door. I went to St. Petersburg. I mean, I I set up a meeting, and they, they were so impressed that an American. I don't know if I'd call myself a scientist at that point, a researcher, that an American researcher would be interested in anything that they were doing. Because as you alluded to, there is not, has not been a lot of communication and sharing of information between Russia and America, which is unfortunate. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and they, uh, Professor Cavinson was so surprised, I guess you would say, uh, that an American would come all the way over there um, and ask them, you know, what are they doing and where can you fit me in? Nice. Um, and I think what actually got me in probably was, is my wife, Vess. Um, she's a incredibly, um, an incredibly, um, what I say, not attractive in the physical, she is that, but people just are attracted to her. She's yep, just honest. Yeah, yeah, great enter. That's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Cavinson could have sent me out the door, but because I had Vess with me. <laughs> it's <laughs> funny how they get with her. Okay, yeah. Nice. And, whatever and it, it takes. Listen, yeah, who cares? Yeah, whatever, whatever works. But I mean, not, a, not in a, in a, um, not in a, no, yeah, not in a bad way. I get you. Yeah, right. But they, they were pressed the fact that the two of us came and, uh, there was actually an instant liking between Cavinson and I. Uh, he's the brightest human being I've ever encountered. Um, and the uh, staff people were really uh, uh, gracious and so forth. And so I kept going back. And over a period of time, uh, they assigned me some kind of a title. I I've never been able to figure out how it translates. I think it maybe says something about assistant janitor or something like that. <laughs> I'm pretty. I'm pretty confident it goes beyond janitor. Well, I'm just. I'm maybe just so. putting it out there. <laughs> I don't know that they let the janitor run the studies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but let me give you just real quick a little history here. Uh, I, I'm sure you've read about it. You know, these peptides were developed, um, like so many things, uh, by. Uh, the military, the Soviet yes. Union military. Yes. Just like American military, you know, in the NASA program, you have, I call these spinoffs, okay, mm -hmm. where they have all of these things that they, it wasn't really on the agenda, but they discover things along the way uh, that are really helpful, commercially valuable, and so forth and so forth. Well, what happened was the uh, Soviet military, uh, particularly the submarine corps, um, was having real problems because they were sending out young seamen mm -hmm. um, in their 20s and young officers in their 30s for, you know, three, four months at a time sitting in a submarine that was probably built in the late 50s and 60s, because yep. this is all happening in the 70s, sitting next to a, a nuclear reactor with some very crude uh, protection. And they were finding that when these submarine patrols would come back, that uh, the personnel were having 
all sorts of medical issues, particularly immune uh, uh, problems and so forth. Today, we would call it accelerated immune syndrome or something of that nature, yeah. Yeah. but basically thymus issues. Sure. And mentioned that their circadian cycles must have been a mess. Oh, a mess. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not sure how the military today in the U.S. handles that kind of stuff. Obviously, there, there's got to be a whole program uh, mm. for that. Anyway, so the Soviet Union military, because it was the Cold War and everything, and there was also some concern by the Soviet military that the U.S. was developing some lasers that would damage hearing and eyesight and so forth. And so they threw huge amounts of money, according to Professor Cavinson, at uh, trying to figure out what they could do to rehabilitate, you know, these the submarine people. They also had the what they call the cosmonaut or astronaut cosmonaut yeah. program was starting up. Uh, they were concerned about what would happen when these cosmonauts would come back uh, yeah. from space. So they threw, according to Professor Cavinson, so much money. It was like an unlimited budget. He says you couldn't you could never do today what they were able to do at that time because mm -hmm. of the Cold War. And they what they did is, you know, as you well know, um, scientists don't just sort of wake up one morning with, you know, the, the, the bright eyes idea and the new invention. OK, you, you build on the soldier oh, on yeah. the shoulders of everybody else. Einstein might be an exception to that. Um, but anyway, so what they did was they went back and looked at the work that Ivan Pavlov had done back in the early 1900s. Uh, Ivan Pavlov is known primarily for the classical, classical conditioning with animals and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. His real feel, of course, was human digestion. Um, the physiology of human digestion. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Well, they worked on the dogs, but but what he was really doing was trying to learn basically all about human physiology and, and the digestive processes and yes. so forth. So he had done an awful lot of work. Uh, you know, he was very active until until his old age. So they went back and got a hold of his data. And he had even talked about peptides at that point, because, you know, peptides are simply small proteins. You know, you know they're chains of, of less than 50 amino acids. And the Russian ones I'll talk about in a moment are even smaller than that. Mm -hmm. but, but they were able to, to work or based, they, they were able to start working in this military context using peptide theory that Pavlov had developed at that point. So the Russian program of peptides goes back I mean, um, Pavlov received the Nobel Prize in 1904. Right. So their didn't program goes back a gastric, long ways. Didn't he do a thing with gastric juice? Where, yes, absolutely. And that's and a lot of people believe that BPC-157 was the active peptide that he was exactly tapping yeah. into at that point. Yeah. He, he was 150 years ahead of time. Well, 120 years ahead of time. So no kidding. anyway, so the Russians, uh, Cabinson uh, and a group of the scientists, you know, you know they were in their mid 20s, late 20s at this point, they built on that and they produced the, the first two peptides, which is the pineal gland peptide called apitalamin um, and the thymus peptide. Um, and that goes under a variety of names. In the clinical study, we, we use the capsule forms of these and it's called baldonics for right. the thymus and, uh, and the pineal is endolutin. Anyway, they started developing these and they found out very quickly that they were an incredible intervention in restoring health and regeneration at the cellular tissue level. 
and they uh, started running some long-term studies. Uh, maybe I'll bring some PowerPoint yep. into this and at guys, this point. Yeah, and so people, I know you can't see this unless I break down and post this on YouTube, which I may, as long as Dr. Lawrence is okay with it. But if not, I will put up the PowerPoint, the, the slide, I'll put the slides into the show notes for sure. Yes, I'm going to have to skip through a whole bunch to begin with. Yeah, so no it'll be click, click, click. Um, I may comment on a few of these. Okay, let's bring this up here. Okay. Okay, here we go. Okay. Um, so guys, just so you know, we're looking at a couple of slides here titled Peptide Longevity Protocol. I'm sure that none of you would be interested in this stuff at all. And... Uh, <laughs> Yeah. The, uh, the overall program, we call it the Peptide Longevity Pro Protocol or the Peptide Longevity Program sort of interchangeably. It's the umbrella for the two clinical studies. Uh, one clinical study is a uh, telomere study or a telomerous activation study. That's the study that's been um, underway for formally about four years now, uh, probably another year and a half before that when I was grabbing anyone that had a pulse and testing uh, them and so forth. Well, I so uh, wish I would have met you then. Yeah. <laughs> and then the other study is more recent. It was, it started about two years ago. Uh, it's a DNA methylation study uh, using uh, Dr. Stephen Horvath's uh, epigenetic clock out of UCLA. UCLA is also where I went to law school. So I, I was real pleased that uh, Horvath uh, was associated with UCLA because it gave me some contacts. Um, anyway, those are the two studies. Um, so they're separate studies. You're looking on the one hand, you're looking at the telomeres for one group and the other yes. group you're looking at the methylation. And so you're not, are you not tempted to look at both for both sides? Or? No, we are. We, you are. Okay. Uh, the the uh, uh, enrollment in both is required. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and I'll mention it in a moment. I, I'm not going to go through all this pe peptide definition and so forth and yeah. amino acids because you know all that. And I think your people probably know it. The peptides are simply very small chains of um, amino acids. Uh, the definition generally accepted in science is if it's less than 50 amino acids, it's a peptide. And if it's more than 50, it's a pro uh, protein. But the Russians, though, figured out that the smaller the, the smaller number of amino acids, the more effective. It's one of those things where less is more. Yeah. And so Absolutely. their peptides are two and three, and a very few of them are four amino acids and no more than that. Yeah. And um, my understanding is that, and that's why those, my, well, my understanding from listening and reading to some reading some of Dr. Professor Kavinson's material is that those two, three, and four teensy little peptides are so small that they actually are orally bioavailable, that the, they will not get further broken down in the gut and can therefore be absorbed into the system where they will essentially find their way to the receptors that are ready to receive them. That sounds just like Professor Kavinson himself <laughs> defining it. Yes, and so, so anyway. <laughs> yeah, and so it it they easily pass through the the cellular membranes. They actually pass through the blood uh, brain membranes. Um, so let me. This That's just amazing. this just shows the binding. This happens to be a pancreas uh, peptide binding to the DNA. Yeah, uh, this and is so and maybe this is something we can talk about as you're flipping through these. Is how do these peptides actually work? And you know, when we talk about receptors, we're talking about receptors that activate genes. Is that correct? That is correct. 
And so in the so in terms of method of action, what these peptides are actually doing is upregulating or downregulating gene expression. Yes, uh, they're in some ways they're similar. Here in America, we have for um, thyroid, we have the the natural. Um, uh, I guess they call them drugs now because they're pharmaceutical required here. But ar- armor is the the old traditional right um, desiccated thyroid. Yes, yeah. exactly. That is sourced from pigs. Right, and it's the same principle in that these peptides come from basically about twelve month old calves, very carefully raised. Uh, the organs are then harvested very, very carefully, uh, filtered and processed, and so forth, uh, and the, and then made up into the amino acid complex. And like the armor, um, the peptides are organ specific. So when uh, Professor Cavinson's team takes, for instance, tissue from, say, the pancreas of a 12-month-old calf or from the heart or from the retina and go through all the processing and so forth, which is a, a hellacious processing because uh, Cavinson's explained it to me. I mean, it's just hellacious what they go through. Anyway, um, when they end up with the final amino acid chain, or what we call the, the bond, um, and you swallow that or you inject it or you take it sublingually, um, then it goes to the particular organ that it was sourced from, just like the armor does. Mm -hmm. And so if you take a heart peptide, it ends up with the heart, brain peptide goes to the brain, et cetera. So somewhat like a salmon, I used to live in Alaska Mm -hmm. for a while, so somewhat like a salmon going back to, um, what's interesting about this is there, there are of course many, many peptides. the Russians have what we call the natural peptide or the cytomaxes. Those are the ones that are, are sourced from the 12 month old calves. And those are the ones we use in the clinical study. In Russia, um, you can, uh, they are considered to be food supplements because of the source. Mm-hmm. And that's why we can bring them into the United States without too much difficulty. Once in a while, uh, a shipment will get snagged by customs, and then I have to jump through some hoops and so forth. But on the whole, they are able to pass through because they're food supplements, which they are. Can I ask you a quick question? Mm-hmm. Sorry to interrupt. But so when, when, when the peptides are extracted from the glands or the organs, is it just the peptides? Or do you believe that these, especially these, um, I'm sorry, Somebody's trying to hone in here, especially these, the, the glandular ones. Do you believe like, like, th- like the armor, there are cofactors and other compounds that are, that remain with the peptide or yes. are they really truly just purifying the peptide? I've asked Professor Cavinson that, and in his explanation, you know, he speaks fluent English, um, mm. but there are words in Russian that don't translate so well. And basically, the impression I have from him is that they are, you also end up with the cofactors. Okay. So that yeah. would explain in many ways. Well, I mean, and, and it's interesting because um, another thing that I've learned is that, or heard, is that these natural source, if you will, peptides that are ex- extracts from the glands and organs might take a little longer to um, to exert their their effect, but yes. it might be longer lasting in their effect. Whereas the synthetic analog of that specific peptide sequence, which can be recreated in a lab, if you will, might be faster acting, but won't last as long. And that might speak to almost like that nourishing quality of the cofactors that we kind of can't explain. The, yes. The fairy dust. Yeah. You have a, an excellent understanding of it. Um, the, 
at the, there's a clinic in, um, well, the St. Petersburg Institute is basically a research facility, but they also have a clinic there. Uh, then outside of St. Petersburg, they have the manufacturing uh, facilities and so forth, where they process the, uh, the organs and so forth. In the clinic, they treat Russians uh, without a charge, um, and other people from other countries will will come to the clinic for uh, various treatments, uh, particularly uh, retina issues, because the Russians are very advanced with uh, retinal science. Yep. And the normal protocol there is to start a patient at the clinic. Uh, they come in and it's a day, day kind of clinic. They come in during, during the day. They'll start them on the injectable intermuscular peptides. Uh, and there are intermuscular peptides pretty much for, for most of the 21 of what we call the natural or cytomaxes. And then at the end of 10 days or so of injections, and they'll do multiple injections. Uh, peptides, the Russian peptides are never used singly. That is, you don't just use mm -hmm. one peptide. There's always a complex of three or four. Uh, in the clinical studies, we even use more than that. Um, anyway, so the, it starts off with intermuscular, and then um, they'll send the patient home, typically with the synthetics, for a short period of time. Um, and a short period of time might be a few weeks, maybe a month or so. Uh, two months would be a very long time. Um, and then they also send them home eventually with the natural peptides. The synthetics are quicker acting, as you understand, because they are basically one amino acid, one molecule. Hmm. As a result, it quickly passes through everything, gets right. into the cells and the tissue and so forth. Um, and they only use those typically if a per never for maintenance. If a person has some kind of a significant health issue, they will go with the synthetics first, always followed then by the natural peptides. Uh, what's interesting here in this chart, I, I know that yeah. people can't see it, the recent uh, vaccine in Russia is a peptide vaccine. Not surprising. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Not surprising um, at all. Yeah. Yeah I, yeah. I have my views on the peptides and so forth. But if someone held a gun to my head um, and they said, if you've got to take a vaccine for COVID, um, and I, if I couldn't squirm out of it any other way, I would say, okay, give me the Russian peptide uh, vaccine. Absolutely. So, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Let's move on. This is just, a, of course, the, that's Kavinson in the, in the group there in front Thank of the St. Petersburg. This is uh, Professor Kavinson. He's a retired colonel uh, in the uh, military, extremely well known in Russia and actually in Europe. Uh, this slide shows that he's the president of the International Association of Gerontology and Geriatrics for the Europe, yeah, the European guys, region. Just so you know, people who aren't seeing this, I'm seeing a, like a full page listing of Professor Kavinson's uh, chief of gerontology, vice president of gerontological society, like the whole right through Europe. So yeah, he, he's well known in Europe, unknown here in the United States, although he's, he has over 700 scientific publications, clinical studies and, and so forth. He has uh, numerous patents because all of these peptides are patented. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, the, the Russians didn't work in secret. I, I mean, they did originally uh, under the Soviet Union, of course, because everything was a, a secret in the military. But um, they've they have partnered 
with a variety of research centers, including the National Institute on Aging here in the U.S., for yep. a lot of these studies that, that I'm going to talk about in a few moments, with uh, institutes in Italy, Germany, France, uh, Spain, Belgium, and so forth. So it's not like these peptides have been kept a secret. It's just that the interest among scientists and the medical world in America hasn't reached out that far and unfortunately doesn't at the moment seem to be willing to make that reach as well. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, because when I've talked about these with, um, with doctors who I've spoken to or interviewed on the podcast, they are gobsmacked and desperate for more information. So, you know, it's, it's interesting how this information hasn't managed to filter its way to, if you will, the front lines because the front lines are all over this stuff yeah, when they hear about it. Yeah, it's the, the internet that's sort of opened that door. Yeah, yeah. Um, I put this, this is a slide of Professor Cavinson about two years ago receiving um, Russia's highest civilian award. It's called the Freedom Award for his 40 plus years of service to the Russian people. And uh, Cavinson, of course, is my boss. Uh, super, he supervises the clinical studies. And what I laughingly say is that his boss is pictured next to him, and that's that's President Putin. Yep. Um, giving Cavinson the award. Uh, what Cavinson is saying in this little clip here is that that he believes that in the next ten to fifteen years, the peptide pharmaceuticals will become the most crucial development in the world, and that's already starting to happen, certainly yep. in Europe, um, because these peptides they have no side effects, mm -hmm. unlike pharmaceutical drugs, and they're so much more powerful than pharmaceutical drugs. Um, I've never seen, of course, President Putin at the clinic, but his personal physician is in there every single month uh, carrying out boxes and boxes of the peptides. And oh, yeah. uh, Putin, no, yeah, he's very keen on, on being healthy and so forth. And his doctor has mentioned in interviews that, uh, that uh, President Putin is biologically younger than his uh, chronological age. Okay, so let's see. Um, yeah, we uh, traditional aging patterns, uh, you know, people get old and so forth. And this is a reference to your earlier question. You know, there, as you know, Natalie, there's all sorts of uh, uh, theories on why we age and so forth. I mean, there's more than what's shown on this slide. And on this slide, I probably have eight or 10 of them. But you'll notice at the top, the telomere shortening and the DNA damage. Um, those are the two that the clinical studies focus on. Um, they, when, when, and I'll talk about it later, when Dr. Horvath at UCLA and his team of uh, scientists, there were about 65 of them working on this for years, when they came up with the Horvath epigenetic clock, that meant that we, could, we had a, a way of measuring, in a sense, biological age. And so uh, Professor Cavinson and I, we, we knew that telomere shortening was you know, an easy target for us because they had already shown 30 years ago and published in 2003 that the uh, bioregulators would lengthen telomeres, but there wasn't any data on the DNA damage, but now we could test. And that's what the second study is. Right. And, and it's interesting because I think that by addressing DNA damage, you would think that you would address some of those other markers of aging yep. as, as a downstream effect, right? Absolutely. Yep. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So this happens to be just a picture of Ivan Pavlov, brilliant, brilliant man. Mm -hmm. uh, this is Cavinson when he was in the military. I mentioned earlier about- He does about, not look like he's aged one bit. How does he uh, look a real person? 
Uh, let's go back to this. Um, a little old. In fact, I, bit, yeah, I I have that picture just two years ago uh, with Cat with uh, President Putin. Yeah, he's he's very healthy. He's my age. He's uh, he'll be seventy. Yeah, he'll be seventy five this year. I'll be seventy five this year. Yeah. Now you don't look your age either. So whatever well, you, you're, you guys are doing something right. <laughs> well, thank you. And you're I, still I, around, as you said. So you're yeah. you're already beating the records in your from your genealogical tree, right? Yeah, they they actually use these peptides with the uh, as I mentioned the cosmonaut program. Uh, they used it. Ah, oh, I put this in for that conference. This is this is Misha. Um, I know that people can't see it, but Misha's uh, got got her little space helmet. She was she was sent up in space, and that that's her little cute uh, space helmet and space suit and so forth. Because both the U.S. and Russia, of course, started the space programs with animals. Right. So Misha's a dog, guys, a very, very cute little dog. Well, so I'll be sure to include this slide in the show. Yeah. Notes. Yeah. I mean, the she little space helmet is Dude. precious. Oh, yeah. This is uh, Chernobyl. Yeah. Um, the the uh, Russians use the peptides for the cancer victims uh, fairly successfully. It depended, of course, on how far progressed the cancer was. But the um, Russians used these peptides to intervene with the cancer victims that came out of uh, Chernobyl. What people don't remember, and it's kind of off the point a little bit, is that originally they had taken robots crude as they were from Germany and Japan yep. and, and attempted to introduce those to start a cleanup or at least actually the in, initial inspections. And the radiation was so bad, it destroyed the robots. Mm -hmm. So they used uh, altogether about 600 military personnel. Um, yeah. you know, and this is just a picture of many of those. As you can see here, the uh, protection uh, equipment they had it was so crude, basically mm -hmm. just jackets. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And they use anyway. They use the peptides for lots of these people. Um, I put this in for the conference. Um, in Russia, they have a very different way of treating failure. Let's let's put it that way. These are three men who were the directors of the Chernobyl uh, facility. And unlike America, where they have these golden parachutes, you know, that companies uh, you know, have negotiated and, and even if the company's in, you know, failing and not making any money, the, the CEO can leave with millions and millions of dollars. Well, it doesn't work that way in Russia. No. Um, no. These men were sentenced to uh, Siberia for long, long periods of time for uh, their role in allowing Chernobyl to happen. Uh, they use them with the Olympic teams over in Russia, particularly the gymnastic teams, these peptides. They use them for recovery primarily uh, while they're training and so forth, because as you can imagine, uh, the people, particularly in gymnastics and so forth, uh, have a huge impact on their bodies and so forth. And the peptides, particularly the muscle peptides and so forth, are used bone, to regenerate. Right? Muscle bone and, yes. and stem cell as well. All now, of that. Now, but he also, I also read somewhere that he talked about and maybe this was an interview you did with with Phil Mickens, where you talk about how when they looked at the telomeres of these 20 year old gymnasts, they were horrified to see that they had telomere lengths that were more compatible with with a 40 year old person. And yep. so that's part of how they used. I would imagine they used the epitalon or pineal, you know, epitalamin. Yep. Um, peptide along with others to help to, and they were able to restore telom telomere length over a period of time. 
Yes, actually, uh, that's correct. And we're going to actually look at some of that data in a few minutes. But um, no, 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 no. (laughs) And and I'll explain what drives that. Uh, Actually, I'll explain it now. Okay. Um, What the Russians understood and uh, the Americans finally understood, um, uh, Elizabeth Blackburn, who one of the three co-recipients with Carol Greider and the fellow at Harvard, uh, received the Nobel Prize for their work in telomere science uh, in 2009 uh, because uh, they had worked for many, many years and had identified the enzyme, that what we call the telomerase enzyme um, in uh, uh, pond scum, actually tetrachyma, I think as I recall the name. Uh, They had discovered it in, uh, in pond scum um, and received the Nobel in 2009. She went on to do a lot of research, and what they discovered was that more than anything else, more than lifestyle, more than diet, anything else, what drives telomere loss is stress. No kidding. Yeah. That you know, and people bad. throw that word around, you know, stress is harmful, stress is going to kill you, and so forth. Actually, with regard to t- Telomeres, it is, because what Elizabeth Blackburn did with her associates, they did a number of studies of um, people, including pregnant women. And this is fascinating. Uh, what they did was they, with questionnaires and interviews and so forth, they um, interviewed women with respect to how they felt about being pregnant. That is, was this a wanted child or an unwanted, yeah. you know, unexpected child? Um, what was going on in that woman's life during that nine month cycle? Uh, was there a good marriage? Were there problems in the relationship with the spouse? Um, did, was there a loss of a loved one during that period of time, like mm-hmm. a parent or someone? Were there economic problems? Were there emotional problems and so forth? And when all the data finally settled out, it was clear from the data published data that the women who had a difficult pregnancy gave birth to offspring or newborns who had shorter than average telomeres. Unbelievable. Yeah. 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 It's how this is this whole maternal, and it's really the environment of the fetus, right? That yes, will exactly. impact its ability to develop and how it develops. That is, that is pretty fascinating. It's sobering. Yes. Right? Very, it's, very. It, it's sobering stuff. So what the Russians did was they did some long-term studies. Uh, this one was published in 2002. Uh, this, I think, was a 15-year study and a six-year study, depending on the age brackets. I'll show it to you in a summary here. Yeah. So what they did was uh, in the 90s, actually started in the late 80s, uh, in this particular study, uh, let's see. Yeah, they had two categories. They had uh, what they call elderly people. People, uh, 60 to 74 years old, yeah. and they they used uh, over a period of 12 years. Um, if I if I put this laser on, can you? That's okay. Don't worry about okay. it. Okay, okay. Uh, if you look in the middle of it, there where it says uh, mortality rate in the course of 12 years. Yeah. Okay. In the control group, which means that those not using uh, peptide, just what they call polyvitamins. In other words, just 
vitamins, normal diet, et cetera, et cetera. In the course of that 12 years for that age group of 60 to 74, 44% of those people died, which would be about normal, except that uh, in Russia, and this was conducted both in Russia and Ukraine, they have less longevity than they do here in the U.S. and so forth, although the U.S. is catching up, or maybe I should say catching down to them. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Well, they live much um, more stressful lives, typically. Yes, sure. yes. Um, so 44% of the people not on the peptides, but using peptides over the course of 12 years, just using the pineal gland peptide, just one peptide, it dropped it in half to 22.3%. Yeah. That is, it, that is it, astounding. Yeah, it dropped the, the mortality rate by 50% just using one single peptide. And this then is all-cause mortality, right? Yes, so is, yes. Which speaks to me to this central role that the pineal gland plays in health and aging. And it's not just aging. It's this whole idea of this circadian clock, this master clock that will then from a downstream, upstream or downstream, however you want to call it, perspective, affect just about every other aspect of our ability to stay healthy. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's drop down to the bottom of this, uh, Natalie, where it says old people. The Russians are not the most diplomatic. <laughs> I love the nomenclature. Yes. Elderly is 60 to 74. And once you're 75 and up, you're just old. <laughs> old. Yeah. yeah. That's the Russians for you. They're very blunt at times. They're direct. Um, we'll call it yeah, direct. <laughs> yeah. I, I happen to love that about them. Um, yeah. Anyway, so in the old people category, 75 to 89, the uh, study was for six years, obviously, because of the age. And during that six years, 81.8% uh, of the non-peptide group died, again, normal for that part of the world. Using one peptide, again, the pineal gland peptide, it was 45.8, basically 46%. But when they added a second peptide, and this is the thymus peptide, it dropped the mortality rate to 33.3%. So you had a reduction from almost 82% during that six years down to 33% with two peptides. Yeah, that's pretty, pretty astounding. Yep. And still staying with our old people, moving on to the next slide. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to get now let's talk about morbidity here for a moment. Uh, this was a study that was done in uh, with Gazprom. Gazprom is the uh, Russians um, sort of equivalent to BP and, and Standard Oil and so forth. Uh, they do a lot of gas and oil and gas work all over the world. Yep. Um, they did a clinical study with 11,000 employees. They gave them six different peptides, the uh, immune system, the brain, the blood vessels, the lung, the respiratory, the liver, and cartilage. Uh, and then the control group was 3,000 of the employees who did not receive the peptides. And this went on for a year. So the, uh, as you see in the chart, the sort of the purple block, the control group um, had what you see there is, you know, significant amount of morbidity or sickness. We don't know the exact number because it's in the clinical study. The point here is that the uh, groups using the peptides reduced in respiratory diseases, which is very relevant for because of COVID, dropped at 2.7 times. In other words, 2.7 times less um, morbidity using those peptides for these employees. And when they looked at total morbidity, not just respiratory, it dropped at 2.3 times. I mean, a huge decrease in morbidity uh, and this is a, th these employees, Gazprom, as you can imagine, very um, 
rigorous kind of, yeah. of employment. A tough job. So one one thing one question for you though. So the observation period was one year. Mm-hmm. Were they given one course of do you know, does it say in the study if they were given one course of the bioregulators or because usually no. bioregulators we talk about two courses six months apart. But well that that would be for maintenance. Okay. Yeah for maintenance. That's I, not yeah. even for illness. But no. yeah. So I'd have to go back and look. As as I recall, this was every other month, I think. But don't okay. don't hold me to that. Uh, okay. Okay. So it was a so, fairly rigorous intervention from a bioregulator perspective. Yes, and with the clinical studies, it's uh, every month actually. Okay. Uh, I'll I'll get to that if we have time. So um, make time. <laughs> okay. So no pun intended, but we can really see the results with retinal issues. Yeah. Uh, and the Russians are known pretty much throughout the world. I'm not sure about America uh, as leaders in vision issues, retinal issues, and so forth. Um, so what this is, these are eye scans, uh, field of vision scans. And what they're showing here is that with diabetic retinoplasty, on the left, what you're seeing is uh, green means that this person has vision. Uh, red, yellow, black means impaired or no vision, the black being no vision at all. So after a couple of years of treatment, and I, I can't tell you the frequency at this point uh, with it, uh, most of what we see here after a couple of years of treatment is green. Wow. So yeah. I would say I would say I would estimate a ninety percent reduction in the black and the red and the yellow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this no, person, the one on the left looks like a patchwork, and the one on the right is almost all green with a color. Yeah, yeah this person has a life at this point in yeah. terms of their vision. Uh, here's retinitis pigmentosa. Uh, yeah. Lots on the left, lots of black. You treat for a couple of years, and a lot of green replaces the black. Uh, with retinitis pigmentosa, you lose the central vision. Uh, I'm sorry, you, you lose the, the peripheral vision. Yeah. And people who have it talk to me and they tell me it's like looking through a straw. Yep. Now I have a good and, friend. And then, I have a good friend who has this and is actually has spoken to the um, the institute in St. Petersburg about about it. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. I've got a couple of teenage boys uh, that have been on the peptides for. Wow, six years now. Two brothers, uh, thirteen and fifteen, were diagnosed in the same year. You know, it's an inheritable disease. Unfortunately, yeah. um, they were diagnosed within the same year, uh, both of them uh, with uh, RP, yeah. and through a series of people just knowing each other and so forth, um, they ended up coming to me. The parents and the boys came to me. Uh, I got with their doctor and. Uh, we put them on a peptide program. I just talked to them two weeks ago and uh, their night vision improved, their peripheral vision improved, uh, and they pro- they still have a diagnosis of RP. I'm not sure that it's ever completely curable, but they have normal lives, whereas over five years, it's a progressive deterioration disease. Yeah. yeah. I mean, people, I mean, I mean, guys, just know that RP, retinitis pigmentosa, is considered by conventional standards, untreatable, progressive, like it's going to do what it's going to do. So I guess, do you know, and has any information come out from the Kevinson Institute, the, from the Institute in St. Petersburg, do people need to be continually treated with the peptides to keep the, the RP at bay? 
Or is it something that over a period of time, you reclaim your vision and you're able to stop the peptides? Do we know that? Or is that one of those things that people are still figuring out? We're still figuring it out. Um, okay. The Where I lean at the moment, based on what I know, uh, is that you're going to have to stay on a maintenance program. Yeah. The, the maintenance program, uh, I, I liken it to this. And that is, you can't go to the gym every day for a year right. you know, and get really strong and then yeah, I'll go every six months after that. Yeah. It just doesn't, doesn't work that way. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, so let, let's skip through these. Here's the same thing with macular degeneration, you know, a significant improvement. I would say there's probably a 75% reduction in the, the black and the red and the, yeah. and the uh, yellow. Here's glaucoma, same thing, vast improvement. Um, uh, I won't go through this cancer thing in any detail. Uh, this is an, an, an induced cancer trial where they were attempting to induce cancer in uh, mice and rats and so forth, either with the DMBA, which is a, a chemical complex that they use, uh, or with um, x-ray or constant lighting and so forth. If you look, uh, Natalie, over here at the far right-hand side where it says control and peptide, yep. what they're showing there, it will take the first one up here with the, the rats with the epitalamin. The control group came down, 81% uh, of the control group ended up having cancer induced, in other words, diagnosed with cancer. Yeah. Um, the group taking peptides before and while the uh, trial was going on reduced it to 26%, as I, that I think that's what crazy. it shows. Yeah. Uh, uh, and all the way down the line, you'll see, if you look at the control group, peptide group, you see these dramatic reductions in uh, successfully inducing the cancer in the control group compared to the peptide group. It is amazing to me also the constant lighting and people, you know, we've been talking about light and the influence of light and the importance of the right light at the right time. But here, um, again, if guys, if you're, if you don't end up going to these slides, there's a slide here that shows that epitalon was administered to female rats and male rats who were I guess were held under constant lighting. So it never got dark. They never got the melatonin. Their circadian rhythm got completely disrupted. And in the female rats, 41% ended up with tumors in the mammary, mammary, gland, mammary glands mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> versus 20. That's the control group versus only like almost half, 27% mm -hmm. with the peptide. So the peptide, again, you know, not a magic bullet, but really significant impact here. And in the males, the constant lighting might produce leukemia. And what we see here, 12% of the males um, developed at leukemia versus zero, like none of them in the yep. peptide group. That is, that's pretty crazy numbers right there. Um, this slide was in the conference because um, we used a huge amount, the doctors in the clinical studies used a huge amount of uh, the natural respiratory lung peptide. It's called Taxarest. Uh, I couldn't get it in as, as quickly as I had it in. It was gone in terms of all, all the physicians were using it for themselves, for patients and so forth. Um, so uh, that's enough. I think uh, all I want to say about that. So here we go with the telomeres. Okay? And, uh, sorry. So for that, would you not stack that as well with Vesugin, with the, the blood vessel one? Oh, yes. We, we never just use one peptide. Right. Uh, yeah. So you could probably almost imagine a stack that might be like the thymus peptide, the lungs and 
blood vessels or something. Yes, like those would be the the three primary ones: the vent, the, yeah. the vent fort for the arterial system, um, the taxo rest, um, the volonics for the the um, uh, immune system, and we probably we almost always throw in the pineal gland, the endolutin oh. as well. Yeah. Okay, um, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about telomeres. No, um, people can look those up. They okay, can, good, they can, good. They they're the, they, basically, they're the end caps uh, on our uh, chromosomes, and they're necessary in order to allow chromosomal integrity to keep basically everything functioning as it should. The pr problem with it is that every time there's a cell replication, you lose a little bit of that end cap. And uh, you'll, people who go to the internet, they'll often be told uh, that they're somewhat similar to the uh, little plastic ends on our shoelaces, like the, I think they call them aglets in English. Yeah. Um, and it, it, you can lace up that shoelace for a long time, but when that little plastic end tip starts to become frayed and so forth, then it's difficult and finally impossible to continue to, to uh, and that would be sort of the, the situation with cell senescence. Um, as long as that, that end cap is of a certain length, then the cells can replicate rapidly and 100% uh, functionally. That is, you know, can, can uh, represent, uh, my, I'm stumbling around with words now, can replicate flawlessly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's go through this. Uh, we have some American scientists. Bill Andrews is probably one of the leading uh, people who talk about telomere science and so forth. Um, he's just simply saying here that when our telomeres get a little shorter, our cells age and so forth. Um, I think what's interesting also um, is the idea that you have telomeres in, in organs that are organ specific. And yes. you can have your telomeres in your heart be like, I guess this would, it might explain heart disease it, like, you know, your, your telomeres don't uniformly shorten through your whole body no. all at once. They're going, no. It's going to be organ specific based on or system specific based on what you've got going. Yes. And so um, when the, the labs that do the testing, and I, I have used probably six different labs uh, in the past years and have settled on one. Uh, we use SpectraCell labs out of Houston, yeah. um, but I've used everybody else, including LifeLink out of Madrid and various others. And uh, what they basically give you is average telomere length. Mm. So, Okay. So they look at the whole system. Yeah, because they're looking at lymphocytes and, you know, in the white blood cells and so forth. And so you end up with just sort of an average. Uh, they cannot, as far as I know, I don't, I'm not aware if the science has advanced to the point where they can actually go look at your lymphocytes in a particular organ. I don't think that they can. Well, you'd almost think they'd need a biopsy or... Um, yes, exactly. Which yeah. the patient would not be so pleased with. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So um, anyway, people can read about telomeres and so forth. This is Elizabeth Blackburn. Uh, she basically is making the statement, people with longer telomeres have less risk of developing the common illnesses of aging. So it isn't just about longevity. It's also about health span. In other words, yeah. uh, minimizing uh, disease uh, uh, exposure, vulnerability. Um, so this is actually the study that I mentioned to you, Natalie, that um, I saw that was translated. It was in 2000 three or something like that, yeah, um, where they sh was showing that epitalin uh, induces telomerous activity and telomere elongation. And when I saw it in a translated thing, that's what took me to Russia. Yeah, I'll bet. 
that right on the plane. Yep. Uh, this is Michael Fossil, really a, a really good, good fellow, uh, MD, PhD, uh, has written the finest lay professional book uh, called The Telomerous Revolution, recommended to, highly to everybody. You can read it in probably four hours. Um, a person who without a science background will readily understand it. He talks a lot about the science of it, but then what's interesting is he goes into the various major organs like the brain, the heart and so forth and so forth yeah. and talks, talks about how it affects, how telomeres affect all of that. Um, he's working on uh, putting together a synthetic that he has in FDA stage one trials at the moment. Uh, he's hopeful to finally get a synthetic because he wants a patent and get the insurance companies and then to pay for it. And hopefully it will be effective for people. Uh, he and he and I correspond periodically. He knows what the Russians have. He knows what I'm doing with the clinical studies. We're, we're using the natural peptides that can't be patented. And so there's no big monetary value, unlike the synthetics. Right. So I have a question for you on the telomerase. But so we know that um, I recently heard something about cancer cells having very, 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 very long telomeres. Yes. So if we're somehow positively affecting telomerase so that our telomeres don't shorten or might even lengthen, how does this not negatively affect cancer cells? Do we know that? Or is this still a bit of a question mark? Because no. everything we're seeing here is that, you know, epitalon, thymolin, the, these peptides would be a hindrance to cancer cells. Yes. If a per person has can diagnosed cancer, um, we would not want to be lengthening their telomeres, even though there are some studies that indicate that a, a lengthening telomeres is not going to contribute to that because the cancer itself is going to create its own telomeres enzyme. Okay? Uh, okay. Um, so what, but just out of a sense of caution, we screen out anyone that has had a cancer diagnosis uh, right. for the clinical study. But Cavinson tells me and other re published research indicates that lengthening people's telomeres is not going to trigger cancer. But if a person has cancer, what we don't know is, will it contribute to that situation? The answer probably is no, because the yeah. cancer itself is activating the telomeres enzyme. If anything, it might help you win the race. But anyway, let's carry yeah. on. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we know from a lot of studies that uh, short telomeres play a central role in almost all the age-related diseases. Now, I'm not saying by that that short telomeres cause those diseases, mm -hmm. but what we do know from lots and lots of clinical studies, and there's probably at least, I think last time I looked, there's more than 5,000 PubMed and other uh, uh, published um, articles on telomeres, okay? Mm -hmm. um, what we do know is that the people who have shorter telomeres become more vulnerable to these various diseases. Um, and so the idea is if you can uh, keep your telomeres from uh, um, significantly shortening or what we call accelerated uh, telomere loss, the belief is that, and backed up by a lot of clinical studies, is that you are less vulnerable to all of these diseases. And the science basically shows in the published studies that people with short telomeres come down with all these common common diseases more readily. Um, I think this slide is, yeah, we, we know from the published studies that their short telomeres 
or associated with the cancer, heart disease, diabetes. The fraternal twins that you see here at the bottom, yeah. this is one of those where I was talking about that the twin who had the shortest telomeres have had a 300% greater risk of death than the twin that had the longer telomeres. Interesting. Okay, so here's the clinical study that we call the telomeres activation protocol. Um, sometimes I'm, when I'm explaining, to, I put this in when we were still admitting uh, lay people into uh, the study. Um, telomeres are sort of like tread on the tires. Yeah. You, you journey, you know, a long time you go on the, you know, you go on drive, drive your vehicle and so forth. And the, the running components can be fine. The engine can be fine. But as you wear down the tire, you're not going to be able to go on a longer journey at that point. Mm -hmm. And so what we're doing is basically creating a new tire. Yep. Okay. Nice, deep, beautiful treads. Okay. So our clinical study was based on, you know, we uh, factor in chronological age, then we get people tested uh, for their telomeres, uh, again, with the Spectre cell, uh, and they give us what we call a telomere age. Uh, they also give us the percentile compared to their same age peers. And so we established these baselines for people. Uh, this is now old by probably two years. I just haven't taken the time to really update the slides. Uh, but initially we had 37 subjects who had completed at least two years in the clinical study using a variety, using most of the 21 natural peptides. And the ones shown here are cartilage, liver, pancreas, pineal gland, the thymus, the, the uh, serlutin, and the ventford for the arterial system. But we use all of them, uh, basically. A spreadsheet that we had for all these people where we show a baseline over on the left, uh, that those columns are uh, their chronological age at baseline, their telomere baseline age, um, and the percentage and so forth. The middle is then the after two years period of time, the improvement wow. in basically everybody. And I know the print's very small. Uh, I'm going to show it to you in some separate uh, documents here. Although but, some some less so than others, and do, oh, much so, huge, huge uh, variability. Yeah. yeah. So does that have to do? Have you figured out like is that their lifestyle, diet, or or you don't know? No, I sort of know after doing this for all these years. Um, yeah. It's based on a couple things. There is some correlation. We have three dosage levels, and we let the participants decide which dosage level they want to be on. So we have a very low dosage, we have a medium dosage, and we have a high dosage. Um, and so the people who have chosen the low dosage, kind of, I'll say, and that's not a very, not a very scientific measurement, but yeah. kind of there's a correlation with low dosage, but sometimes not, okay? What I have discovered, uh, backed up by Elizabeth Blackburn's research and so forth, is more than anything else, it's, because I, I know all these people, uh, I'll yeah. explain that in a moment, um, it's, the, it's the stress that they're under. Yeah, yeah. More I than would, anything else. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, because I'm seeing here that some it, the people who've not had the best out. I mean, there's, I mean, there's some here that are jaw droppingly unbelievable. Like a, um, anyway, there's a couple that have seen incredible changes, but there's a few people that have seen very little change by comparison. So one of them's low, but there's another one here who's who's apparently on a higher. Like this this one from 74 telomere, telomere age to 68, which is still pretty good, but nothing compared to the guy or the person that went from 76 to 45. 
And the 74 to 68 is on a high dose versus the 76 to 45, which is on a medium dose. So it must have to do in part with lifestyle and maybe even their own genetics, right? Yes, it's the whole package of things. But I think I would put at the head of that list, stress. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if it impacts a newborn. um, That's no kidding. Yeah, at conception, we we measure telomeres, uh, what we call kilo base pairs. It's a, a, a measurement of length, basically. And we actually do it with PCR. Uh, PCR is very effective um, and very you know reasonably accurate as, as these things can go. For the polymerase chain uh, testing is very accurate for telomere. It's a, it's a wonderful uh, research tool. It's um, a totally total failure as a um, for the virus for the COVID and so forth. Uh, right. It's almost criminal that it was even used. Um, I, when I first was involved with uh, this study, I did a lot of. Uh, and I'm straying a little bit, but I did a lot of what we call due diligence in the in the law program. Okay, so here's just a bar chart reflecting what you were just observing with that some people got a lot of t- telomere lengthening and others got very little. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's look at the data. Now, here's the raw data. This is me. Uh, I was the first one. You got to experiment. The good scientists experiments on their on them their self first. Absolutely. And, yeah. Then you grab your loved one secondly. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so this is, um, let's see, I was 66 at the time. Holy smokes, that's nine years ago. When I did my first telomere test, uh, this is what I was saying earlier that I was getting interested in telomeres as a biomarker. Mm-hmm. So at age 66, um, this baseline test reflected that I have the telomere age of a 72-year-old, and I was in the 47th percentile compared to my peers. Um, this is very typical that I, what I see for Americans, uh, again, I think it carries a lot over in terms of the stress situation. Most Americans will come in four, five, six years older telomere-wise than their chronological age. Huh. So this is before peptides, okay? This is before I met with the Russians and so forth yep. and, be- and became the assistant janitor. <laughs> Um, so two years later, another telomere test, again, before peptides. Um, I'm now 68, so I've aged two years chronologically, but I've picked up an extra year, so I'm now 75 telomere-wise, actually two years, I think. Uh, three. Oh, three years, yeah. See, I, I, my, my uh, telomere loss was accelerating. I was having, literally, based on telomeres, an accelerated aging situation. Okay, so then... Um, yeah, October of, of 2015 is when I started uh, using the peptides, um, sp- specifically for telomere um, intervention. So, yeah, we're coming up six years. My goodness. Um, I was 70 at that point, and my telomere age had been reduced down to 68. So prior to that, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, I had been... This test was in June of 16. I'd been on the peptides since October of 15. So about eight or nine months I had been on these peptides. And at this point at age 70, uh, my telomeres had been reduced down to, I'm sorry, lengthened to that of a 68-year-old. So I picked up- Born in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah. I picked up seven telomere years, you might say, at that point. Absolutely. Uh, Two years later and- um, Look at you. 
Yeah, I'm 72 at that point. My telomere age is down to 44. And, and we see this, the longer a person's on the program, it seems to accelerate. Um, and then... Is there a bottom, do you think? Well, I have one person that came in the other day. She's, I think, 60-something. Uh, Her telomeres are equivalent to a seven-year-old. You're kidding. No. I was, she, I got, okay, now how does she feel? Um, I mean, I, I want to know how she looks, and I'm sure she looks great, but how does she feel? Like, like you know what I mean? Like, people in their 60s often will complain about aches and pains and creaky energy, sleep, this, that. How does... Is it showing up in how she feels? Do you think? I'll, I'll say yes, but let me qualify that. Okay. As you would, as you would know, um, a subjective evaluation is very different than a lab test. Okay, mm -hmm. and so um, I talk to these people all the time. There's now almost a hundred people in the uh, two clinical stu uh, studies, and I talk to them pretty frequently, <clears throat> mostly by email, actually, and so forth. There is no person that I have spoken to um, that feels worse than when they started. Okay. And, and many of them have, and I have to be careful here, but many of them have experienced um, organ regeneration that is reflected by positive labs. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I was going to ask that. Like, have you been, have you seen that people's health conditions have improved? And as much as you can say, that is what you're saying right now. Yes. The and labs seem to be improving. Yes. And it's not that I, um, I end up seeing the labs of the doctors. They, they send me their labs all the time. Um, mm -hmm. And I see the improvement for where they have issues at the beginning. And then a year or two, three years later, I see uh, significant improvement in lab markers. So wow. this, this is the and last one. You. I, well, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, I, I'm 75 in a few months. I feel like I'm 30. Um, I, I'm a ballroom dancer. My partner's uh, a competition ballroom dancer. I still take lessons. I, we dance three nights a week, both Argentine okay. tango as well as ballroom. Love it. Um, I think most people who see us, and I'm going to show you Vess's numbers in a minute, they must think we're probably in, a, in our 50s, probably Vess 35. Yeah. Um, and I have to take the lessons because if I don't maintain my skills, I think Vess is going to run off with an Argentine tango instructor or something. <laughs> I'll show, you a yeah, I'll show you a picture of it in a moment. Anyway, so this is my bat last one. I, I test it myself every two years. At age 73, my telomeres are equivalent to a 35-year-old. Amazing. And I went from the 47th percentile in the beginning to 88% uh, on this last test. Beautiful. Now, now let's take a look at Vess. I'm going to show you a picture of Vess. Vess is with a V. This is her baseline back. She was 60. She's going to be 65 next month. Um, so she was 60 when we did her baseline. She, she also had accelerated telomere loss. Uh, her telomere age was 63. She was in the 49th percentile at that point. This was June of 2016. I'll skip the interim because we tested her every year and just get to the last one. Um, wow. wow. She needs to be that. retested. Uh, we're were overdue. Anyway, her chronological age was 62. Her telomere age was 33. Unbelievable. Point. Yeah. And this is Vess. I know you people can't see Holy the picture. Geez. 
Yeah. She I, looks, I, this slide is going into the show notes. Wait till you see this. Yeah. Yeah. She probably could pass for 40 or 45 at this point. She'll be 65. So, so which kind of answers my question. Is it ever too old or are you ever too old or too young to start? Definitely not too old. Now we're going to, yes, the answer is you're never too old. And here's the uh, other part of your question, too young. I have permission to use her name. This is Tora Bright, uh, Olympic gold and silver medal winner in snowboarding at the 2014 Olympics. Um, And her, apparently the Olympic doctors, as you would expect, do, you know, enormous number of lab tests on these athletes and so forth. Um, And they did a telomere test. This had nothing to do with me at this time. They did a telomere test on her. Her baseline at age 32, her telomere age was 56. Wow. We go back to the Olympic, Russian Olympic athletes. Mm -hmm. It's all about stress because Tora, I've met her and we, we worked together um, Tora started uh, skiing when she was about four years of old age. She was competing at six. Yeah. Talk uh, so, about stress, right? Yeah. Okay. Huge, huge. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Tora has given me permission. She's had nine concussions in her That's skiing common. career, which is common with these athletes. Sure. Sure. So her doctor, uh, the Olympic doctor sent her to a, a doctor who knew me, knew I was running these studies. And so uh, Tora, um, contacted me. We put her on a protocol, both for the concussions as well as her telomeres. And about 18 months later, Tora had the telomeres of a 31-year-old. Wow. So 18 months. So, okay. So next question. And I think I think I know the answer to this. A younger person most likely responds faster to the therapy than an older person. Because like we see here, 18 months, she was able to reclaim 25 years on her telomere age, whereas with us, with you, who was in your late 60s, 70s, it took a little longer to kind of back up the bus. That would seem to be the case. Um, That would seem to be a reasonable hypothesis. The problem is I don't have enough data with young people. Right, right. Um, At this point, um, uh, let me think, Tora is the youngest person we've ever enrolled and tested. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, because we don't have the data, let's say, for those for that young uh, gymnast gymnastics team from the Russians. But so we don't right. know how long it took them to get them back to that 20 year old state from their 40 year old state after, let's say, the Olympics. That's that's correct. OK, um, Interesting. so um, fascinating. I love it. Yeah, this is another lay. Oh, yeah, this is LL. I'll explain this moment. Uh, her baseline, she was 69. Her and her telier uh, test came in at 80. We put her on a program uh, a year later. This. Wow. Her telomeres were that of a 63 year old. Unbelievable. Yeah. Now, and this is just one of many, as you saw yeah, from yeah, the yeah. bar chart and yeah. so forth. Um there's a, a, there's a lesson or, uh, yeah, I guess a lesson you could say. At the beginning of this four or five years ago, um, if anyone, if I knew someone and they had a pulse, I, I wanted them in the program <laughs> because <laughs> that was the only requirement. <laughs> well, because you have to find people who are willing to buy into this at that time, right? Well, I'm sure yeah, they were it, looking at you like you had three heads. <laughs> well, exactly, because here's, here's the pitch, okay? I've got these pills that were developed by the Soviet military. (laughs) (laughs) 
made from and, cow parts. <laughs> right, right. And they come from uh, cows. Um, and I'd really be pleased if you could swallow these for the next few years and we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the definition of trust. OK, absolutely. Although I, I can tell you of the people listening to this podcast right now, there's a whole whack of them looking your number up. <laughs> Wait, where do I sign up? <laughs> well, I, actually, I don't, don't want them to find me. We'll, we'll have to. I know we talked that. about yeah. this. We're not giving links. I promise. Okay. So <laughs> the the lesson here, though, is that this lady is my ex-wife. Oh, uh, well, we, look at what a nice guy you are. Yeah, we we uh, <laughs> you know were dating in high school, got married young, and so forth. Uh, we divorced in 1980. The friendliest divorce in the world. We had our arms around each other crying at the time. Aww. We just we just knew that we shouldn't be husband and wife. We've been friends ever since. I mean, literally, I, every couple of weeks I talk to her. Um, so the lesson here is for the, the benefit of, you know, two human beings that once had a relationship, for the benefit of children, because we have two children, and they have been really the beneficiaries of us having a nice friendship. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. And, and the other uh, advantage is that if you can maintain that kind of a relationship as a scientist, you can experiment on them. <laughs> okay. Uh, That's a good benefit. I mean, yes, and look yes. at, look at, she, she reclaimed, what was it? Like 17 about, years? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. 60, about 17 years. Yeah. And she's still in the program. Oh, uh, she's, she's probably like 22 by now. I mean, she's, no, I think she's, she's come out on top here. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, anyway, back to the whole clinical study. So for that, for the people who had been in it two years, and this, this information is a little dated now, but it, it's running about six years for air on average, six years, uh, telomere reduction or a telomere uh, age reduction for every year in the program. And so for the first two year period where people had been in the program for two years or more, um, it was a 12.32. When you took all that, those people, the 37 right, on people. On average. Yeah. yeah. Um, so 12.32 year, uh, and just we can skip that. This is, I just thought that was cute. We want to be the guy with the long telomeres. Yeah. Yeah. No, we've yeah. got telomere, um, telomere humor here. Yes. Yeah. Now, this is Vest sitting in Dr. Cavinson's uh, conference room. The pictures that you see in the background are uh, famous Russians and other people, including prime ministers from different countries who have come for to sure. the Institute for Treatment. Um, Professor Cavinson is looking like the proud father at this point. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, very, very pleased with this was the uh, one once we got into the two year mark. So that's amazing. OK, that's that. Okay, so that's current aging expectations. This is what Professor Cabinson and I believe it's going is going to be and is. Yeah. yeah, and that slide, people, just instead of watching people stoop over, we now finish with a standing tall, nice physique person stepping yeah, out. So where do you suppose this is all going, though, with, you know, if we believe that human lifespan has an endpoint at around 120 years, do you think, and again, like this is all, we don't know, conjecture. This is, we're kind of learning as, as you go along here. Oh, you're talking about that right here. Practical yeah. immortality. Okay. I'm going to stop with my question and let you go on. Sorry. Well, your question is a perfect introduction to this. Yeah. Yeah. How long can we live and how long can we live well? Yeah. Figure. That's the key, of course, is is the latter. Um, oh, just yeah. longevity by itself is not important. The goal nope. is to have longevity <laughs> and health span. 
Um, <clears throat> so what this slide shows, uh, this is from a, a, a really smart uh, scientist. Uh, I know him just sort of briefly, uh, again. Um, what he is saying, and, and a lot of us know this already, is that we're just on the cusp at this point between various peptides, not, not just the Russian peptides, but other peptides, uh, other discoveries, where it looks like we're going to be able to, if not cure, we're going to be able to control a number of chronic diseases like cancer, heart disease, diabetes, and so forth, even though it's, you know, diabetes is exploding, but that's all about lifestyle and diet and so forth. All of these things, uh, the idea is that over the next 10 years, if you can stay healthy to take advantage of what's available now, which, you know, it takes a certain amount of discipline and so forth. Mm-hmm. You got to have the right diet. You got to go to the gym and work out. You got to reduce the stress. You got to, you know, do a number of things. Meditate. But if you can stay, yeah. yeah, if you can stay healthy for the next 10 years and 10 years is a guess, there will be such, I think, phenomenal is the word I would use, medical and health interventions that we then can leverage that up to 120 or 130 years. And that's what the concept of the bridge is. But you've got to stay healthy to cross the bridge to take advantage of those things. Amazing. And then you're saying in the future, we may be seeing lifespans of, let's say, for our grandkids, let's say, they may be looking at the possibility of 150 to 200 year lifespans. Boy, that people is, better like their careers. Yes, or <laughs> just, really good at it. <laughs> or cha- or just change every two. Just years. keep cha- well, do like what you did, right? Have multiple yeah. careers. Yeah. So I don't. I, I know we're used up a lot of time. There is a second study. Maybe we can do the second study review at some later date because we've used up a lot of time. Yeah, no, I'm, and I think if, if you're willing to do a part two, I'm all over that. I think that would be amazing. We can talk, this is the epigenetic methylation study. So maybe what we'll do is we'll kind of wrap it up here because I don't want to take, I mean, I don't want to take up too much of your time either. And besides people at this point have run out, they've probably finished a notebook and moving on to the next one. So yes, <laughs> yes. Or run out of ink on their pen. So I will just ask you, if you don't mind, maybe one or two short questions to finish mm-hmm. off. And um, and then what we'll do is we'll figure out a time to, to go into the next study. And that would be, you know, I, I've you've already answered for me, I think what you think is the most important thing that people can be doing to improve or maintain their health. And I think stress management, stress, lifestyle, frankly, like what you talked about almost trumps even the peptides ability to lengthen telomeres, somebody who's living an extremely stressful life. Would you, would you say that that is, what would you say? Is it stress? Is it diet? Um, are, are we, are you asking basically to create the longevity that, that we're seeing? Speaking, yeah. what is the formula? Is that sort of what you're saying? More or less. Like, what do you think is the most important? What are, or we don't even have to say one thing. What would you say are the top three things? If you were to say to someone, look, here are three things I think that everybody should be doing right now to improve, to make it to that bridge, right? To make, to make it to that 10-year mark healthy, healthy enough that you're able to cross the bridge to 120. Okay. Diet is number, in my world, is number one. 
you can't have the standard American diet that they call sad yeah. and expect to have longevity or health. It just isn't going to happen. Um, the, uh, the food production industry basically has destroyed uh, what I would consider to be actual food. Yeah. Um, and so diet is number one, because I, I don't know this scientifically, uh, Natalie, but I would think as powerful as these peptides are, I don't, I think it, without a proper diet, you're not going to get nearly the benefit, but maybe I, I just don't know. But anyway, diet is number one. You've already identified number two. You need to get the stress out of our lives. Yeah. Um, number three, I would say, and uh, the order could, could change. Um, you got to keep moving. You got to have exercise. Mm -hmm. You have to have some kind of a hobby or whatever that keeps you moving all the time. And part of that is flexibility. The biggest, one of the biggest problems I see with uh, aging people is they lose, they become frail and they lose the flexibility. And then that interferes with their lifestyle. They start watching TV instead of going out playing tennis and so forth. Um, you also have to, uh, and you may want to edit this out, but you have to avoid, at least in America, going to a conventional physician. Yeah. You've got to go to the alternative, holistic, uh, you know, integrative. They, they all need to agree on a term at this point for the non-conventional doctors because the conventional doctors are um, not serving their patients well, mm -hmm. you know, for a lot of reasons. Um, you also have to, if you're going to reduce the stress, you have to, in my world, avoid the media because the media is not accurate anymore. You know, when we were, when I was a kid and Walter Cronkite, you know, would explain the news and stuff, you could sort of understand it was probably reasonably accurate, although the Vietnam War changed that. Um, but you can't listen to the mass media anymore. Yeah, um, they're not it, reporting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you want the stress out of your life, you have to turn those people out and just ignore them. You also have to ignore. We've seen this this last year. You've got to ignore any quote scientist who is with the government, with the pharmaceutical industry, mm -hmm. a university that gets funding from the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, you have to ignore anything that comes out of out of that place. Um, I, I won't go further into it than that. And I say the last thing is you have to be grateful. Yeah. Just grateful that, that we woke up this morning, grateful that I'm breathing and talking to you there in, in Canada and so forth. Grateful that you're going to do whatever you're going to do this evening or whatever. I'm just to have this life is yeah. so amazing, particularly at 75 to have this life and to have the possibility for me of another, I'm counting on at least another 25 years. So. Which will, you've already beaten all the records in your genealogy. So, yep, I, I have uh, been fortunate in that sense. So. It. Yeah, you so know? that's what I would say are the, those things it. come to mind. I love it. Thank you. So. Um, okay, last one. What's the one thing that surprised you the most in doing these clinical trials? If you had to name one, what's the one biggest surprise for you? Wow. Yeah, here it is. It's it's not a positive, unfortunately. The the biggest surprise is I would have people refer to me. This doesn't happen pretty much since I restricted it to health professionals. Mm -hmm. I would have people refer to me, and if it was a married couple, 
one of them would be really gung-ho in terms of their health. And oftentimes the other had no interest in cleaning up their life and would even sometimes sort of sabotage. Yeah, I see. You know, you know honey, it's just one drink. It's just, you know, one more donut, you know, whatever it may be. So yeah. I would say the b- biggest surprise, and that may be because my life for the last 30, 40 years has been so focused on being healthy and not dying, basically young. Yes. That I guess the biggest surprise, I'm just, I kind of thought everybody would want to be like me in terms of I want to wake up tomorrow morning. Mm-hmm. That's probably the biggest surprise is that there are numbers of people who they're not will. Here, here's an example. And I, and I know we need to finish this up. This is so sad. I had a couple that uh, were in the program years ago, wonderful Philippine couple living in Las Vegas. And the husband was diagnosed with dementia, Alzheimer's, uh, just after we had started the program. There were some signs there and so forth. Um, but we left, we kept him on the peptides and so forth with the idea that maybe, you know, with his permission of his doctor and so forth. And I had to meet with the doctor and explain what we were doing. The one thing that was troublesome was that this fellow grew up drinking Pepsis. Mm. We're sitting there at his table in their home one day, one evening, and I'm just talking to him about, you know, we're not making any progress with the dementia. In fact, it's getting worse. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, as I have said to you several times, if you want to get well, you're going to have to give up the Pepsis. This is heartbreaking. You are have to give up those Pepsis. And he looks at me and his wife is sitting there and he says, I've drank Pepsi. He was like in his 60s. I've drank Pepsis ever since I was a little kid in the Philippines. And I just can't give them up. And I say, I said to him, you know, your dementia is getting to the point where you may not know who this lovely woman is sitting across from you, your wife of 40 some odd years. You're going to have to choose between the Pepsis and having an ongoing relationship with this lovely woman. So what's your choice? Honest to God, Natalie, what he said is, I'm not going to give up the Pepsis. Yeah, it's yeah. It is heartbreaking. Yeah. I've, I've, I've actually sadly seen that myself in my practice. And it is, it's gobsmacking. It's astounding yeah. when you meet someone like that. And, and, and those people are out there. And, you know, you can only do what you can do, right? Yep. Exactly. People have to want it more yep. than Somebody once said to me, if you're working harder than your clients, then there's something wrong. (laughs) (laughs) That that is so true. So true. It's taken me a long time to actually learn that. Yeah. 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 And you have to just, you know, release them with grace and wish them well on their journey. Yes, exactly. We all have our path. Yeah. And on that, Dr. Bill Laurence, I am going to thank you again profusely for your generosity of time and knowledge and information. This has been an absolute pleasure. And um, I really look forward to part two where we can talk about the next study. Uh, It's my pleasure too. It's been lots of fun. Thank you so much. Okay, bye for now. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to leave us a five-star review on iTunes because that's what helps us to be heard and to be seen. If you'd like to connect with me directly, or if you'd like to leave any comments, or if you have any questions about this episode, please reach out to me directly through my website, natnidham.com. And of course, if you're not already a member of the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Community on Facebook, that's where you'll find me every day. It's a short application, 
Just answered a couple of questions and you're in and interfacing with other amazing biohackers. Thanks again, and we'll look forward to seeing you on the next episode.